This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. So before we begin our conversation, I want to just speak for a moment about this week's Torah portion. Um, What we're doing now is kind of a sermon in dialogue, in a way. And I want to frame um, this first by sharing with you one particular uh, fact of note that comes from Parsha Yitro that I am struck by again and again and again as we come to this point in the Torah. This is the parsha, as we heard earlier when Danielle so beautifully read the revelation at Sinai, including the Ten Commandments, that really holds the sacred revelation that is at the very heart of our faith as Jewish people. And yet, the Torah portion is called Yitro, not Moshe, not named after Moses, but named after Moses's father-in-law, who was Kohen Midian, He was not only not an Israelite, not part of the people, but he was actually an idolater. He was someone who came to visit Moshe and the Israelites just as they prepared to assemble at the foot of Mount Sinai in order to receive this divine revelation. So the question always emerges when we come to Parshat Yitro, why is this Torah portion that holds in it the most, probably the most important and impactful moment of revelation in all of Jewish history and Hebrew history, named after someone from outside the community who has a relatively marginal role in the story, or so it appears. The rabbis attempt to answer this question by making it a little bit more complicated than it even was to begin with, which is their way. And they suggest that, in fact, the events of this Torah portion may not have actually happened in the order that they appear in our story. The way it appears in the story, Yitro comes to visit and engages with Moshe and the community right before the revelation. But some of our rabbis suggest, in fact, that really Yitro came after the revelation. So then the question is, so then why does something that happens after the revelation get flipped in the order in this parasha, and then this somewhat marginal event actually becomes definitional for the revelation of Torah, of, uh, the revelation of God's, of God's word at Sinai? It seems a little bit preposterous. So, I want to remind us today, as we head into this conversation, of a comment by Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra's words uh, have been shared in this room before, over the years, as we have met Parshat Yitro in years past, in other moments of fear and anguish and heartache for our Jewish community. And I think that his words bear repeating today, because they seem in some way maybe even more critical and urgent today than they have been even in years past. So here's what Ibn Ezra says. Ibn Ezra claims that Yitro's visit to the camp was mentioned here first before the revelation witnessed by two million people in the desert, this core and critical moment, for one reason. Because at the very end of last week's Torah portion, at the end of Parshat B'Shalach, we heard the horrifying story of the attack of Amalek against our people, against the Israelite people. And you might recall that Amalek is notorious because 
they attacked not only the people Israel, but the most vulnerable among the people Israel. They attacked the children, and they attacked the elders, and they attacked those who could not defend themselves. And that is how Parshat Bishalach ended. And here's how this one begins. Yitro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard everything that God had done for Moshe and Israel and came to see the people. Ibn Ezra suggests for us that the reason that this parsha starts with Yitro and in fact is named for Yitro is in order to juxtapose the acts of Amalek with the acts of another person who comes from outside our community, Yitro, who engages our people in a totally different way and with a totally different heart. Ibn Ezra says, mention of Yitro is placed here because the Torah had just mentioned the evil that Amalek did and the Torah wants to contrast those acts of cruelty with the good that Yitro brought to Israel. I think that that lesson is absolutely critical for us today because what it is saying is that it is important not to diminish or downplay or justify what Amalek did to Israel. And it is equally important not to look at every person who dwells outside our immediate family as Amalek, as someone who intends to do harm to our people forever. And so the Torah interrupts the flow of our narrative and inverts the plot line and buries the lead by all accounts to tell us about this seemingly marginal visit from Moses' father-in-law before even inviting us to the foot of Sinai to hear the divine revelation. Because it seems to be saying that this message, the message that our responsibility is to see the other, the one who lives and dwells outside of our immediate family, also as one of our own, our own responsibility, and someone who could bring great goodness to us and whom we are responsible to bring goodness to, that that message itself may be even more important than the divine revelation. The message of the relationship between Israel and Yitro may have primacy over the divine revelation itself. Ibn Ezra is reminding us that Yitro's goodness, that the wise counsel that he brings, the priceless wisdom and moral support, the force of good that he embodies is something that we must never forget and something that we must not marginalize, even though he appears to be a marginal figure, because in fact, he is more reflective of the reality than we might instinctively ever feel. That is one of the reasons that I believe it is so important that we hear today from Mai and from Dr. Hardal, because precisely in this moment in which our hearts are broken and anguished as we continue to reel from and to grieve from atrocities that were committed against our family, we as a community are in danger of losing our moral sense and beginning to believe that everybody who's not me is an enemy of mine. And that is a profound danger and a profound moral failure for our family. And so what we must do is lift our gaze, expand the scope of our moral concern, and begin to believe that we can see the world as family, and especially and in particular, that Israeli Jews and Palestinians can see one another as family, just like Moshe and Yitro 
so many years before. And so I thank you for being here and for, for sharing your presence here. And I'm sure it's not an easy time to be away from home. And I know that today we are going to engage in a difficult conversation. I'm sure that this is one that will sound counterinstinctual and complicated and, uh, and maybe even problematic for some of the people in this room. And I believe that it is absolutely imperative that we listen today, that we listen not only with respect, but with great open hearts, because the voices that you are hearing on this Bima today are serious and intentional thinkers. These are people who for over a decade, and for many years even before that, have been involved in the struggle to imagine a just and peaceful future. These are people who have chosen not to cast their lot with those who believe that eternal war is the only future, and instead to dream and to imagine that together we can do better, and we must do better. So I believe that it's imperative for us as a Jewish community to hear from you and to ask our questions and to engage in this challenging conversations and to learn as much as we can so that we can continue to platform and to resource and to, uh, and to help support those people who are actually on the ground, who are, whose lives are most immediately impacted by the conflict so that we can together support a way out of this. So I am going to... Um, I'm going to turn it over to the two of you, and I want to ask you to speak for a few minutes, if you would, about how the two of you came to this work and how you envision and believe that we might ultimately achieve a just and peaceful future. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shabbat shalom. Um, okay. I will try to do it short, even though it's, it's a little bit hard to do it short, but I will try. Um, so, I was born in, in, in the northern part of Israel. I was raised there. I studied at the Hebrew University. I moved then to Haifa, and I did my master's. I worked for 10 years, and then I <clears throat> left to Germany to do my PhD, um, where I where I also lived for 10 years, and 2015, I turned back to Israel-Palestine. And I, I use sometimes maybe strange phrases for your ears, but for me, it's Israel-Palestine. If you want to call it Eretz Israel, I'm fine with that. If you want to call it Palestine, I'm fine with that. <clears throat> so when I came back, I decided to be in, in a Palestinian context. And I, I lived in Jerusalem. Later on, I moved to Ramallah. And I started to work at um, uh, Al-Quds University, which is a Palestinian university in East Jerusalem. Um, later on, I, I, um, I moved back in terms of my academic career to, to the Israeli side to um, Western Jerusalem, and I started to be much more involved in or at Van Leer Institute and, and the Shalom Hartman. This, um, this long journey of being Israeli citizen, living abroad, coming back, 
to Israel-Palestine, um, working, researching, teaching, <laughs> engaging on both society, very close um, in, in both society, societies, gave me actually a kind of <clears throat> a new understanding of myself, of my um, complex component of my identity uh, as, as a Palestinian, but also as an Israeli citizen. But much important than that, to, <clears throat> to start beyond, beyond the knowledge and beyond theories and beyond history and political analysis and understanding, to understand in a very deep sense where both peoples are. And one of the most insights that I learned in this long journey that both people are very rooted in this place, in Israel-Palestine, as a homeland, uh, in a very sentiment, sometimes religious even, understanding, theological, if you want, <clears throat> but also political uh, uh, attachment to, 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 that, to that place. And the second, the second insight that I, I developed from my personal experience, that we can consider the whole space as a homeland and we can live both peoples um, in this place the way I, I live it actually. Um, I live in Israel, I live also in the Palestinian territories, in, in, in Ramallah, I work in both places, and it's doable. It's not so utopian if we want to, to do that. Um, and the, the third insight maybe is to understand the deep trauma and the collective memory of both people um, the Jewish-Israeli people um, through the, the Holocaust and, and the, the long traumatic history they, they have and <clears throat> their attachment following that to, to be in Israel-Palestine and to insist their existential need to be there in a kind of, of homeland and, and sovereign country. Um, meanwhile, um, to understand much more uh, the existential fears of the Palestinian people following, uh, following the Nakba in 48 and um, their continuous struggle to stay in Israel-Palestine and build also their... Um, their homeland. So all of these <clears throat> um, experiences, plus, um, I, I cannot ignore that, plus my uh, research academic interest brought me to, to, to a point a couple years ago to say, um, it's not enough for me um, 
to, to continue only being in the academic sphere. Uh, it's, it's a very safe uh, uh, space to be in, uh, where, can, where, where I can practice my political, moral um, uh, 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 impact on my students. I want to do something to be more um, influential in order to bring both people to have a better present and, and future. And that's why I, I engaged uh, with Land for All two and a half years ago. Thank you. And Mai? We share, we share. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, I, 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 I want to start by um, how special it is to be in a, in a community. Um, it's been really difficult the past few months. And um, everything is very broken, profoundly broken. Um, and I think we've been in such a survival mode in the past four months that we haven't had a time to break. And so actually, um, coming here uh, right now has been very, uh, feeling very up, we feel very uprooted. We feel like, you know, we've, the four, past four months I think has been, for many of us, for some of us it's been a moment of such immense trauma and fear that people have just taken their stuff and, and left. And we've been talking about the shared trauma of Israelis and Palestinians, of having this like safety bag. Very different, but also similar. Of Rula um, spending the past four months with like a suitcase in her bag, in her car, and her so many of my friends have been just like, let's, let's get out of here. Let's just get out of here and save our kids, you know? Save, just fine, we'll go back to being, you know, wandering Jews, but at least. For me, however, I've felt that my feet have become these, like, um, roots, and I just, like, couldn't move. I couldn't move. I, I couldn't move. I was like, I'm gonna, I, this is where I, I'm gonna stay and fight for my home, whatever, whatever it takes. That was, and, and I, I say that because, um, we are here because this is a very urgent moment. Hopefully, maybe historic, or it is historic. Hopefully, we can change history. But I want to start with how awful, how awful this moment is for all of us. Israelis, Jews, Palestinians, human beings, honestly. And, um, and I think it's important to acknowledge the darkness 
and to sit with it. And I, I, I want to say that I've been crying all morning here, and thank you for allowing me to do that because um, I haven't allowed myself to cry in four months. Uh, and being a, a step outside of Israel-Palestine feels very, feels actually un, very uncomfortable. Like I don't, I want to be home. I actually don't want, I want to be home right now. Um, but it's a gift to be uh, in this very thoughtful and very, I've been talking to David, like how vulnerable this space is. Very, very vulnerable. And, um, and that allows for the pain to, to come up. And I think it's really important to, uh, yeah, thank you for letting me like feel my pain. Um, I'll try to just say a couple of more sentences um, about the light. We're here not because we want to be here, but thank you for having us. <laughs> We're here because um, this is a historic moment. And while we are here, uh, the war or tragedy or whatever we want to call what's going on in, in Israel, Palestine, and specifically in Gaza and the West Bank and for Palestinians inside of Israel as well, and East Jerusalem, and for all of us. This is a, a huge catastrophe, huge, which is going on as we speak. And we are here today because this war, this catastrophe, this conflict needs to end. And we are here to say that things are so broken that hopefully the only way out of it is something different. And we are here to advocate that that something exists. And in many ways, uh, we, we are a part of it, you know? And we are here as an Israeli and a Palestinian to prove and to show and to invite you all to take part in that change. Because whatever all of us have been doing so far is not good enough and probably not the right thing to, it's, it hasn't saved us, right? It hasn't redeemed us. And so we are here to say that there is something to do. And I think we have some interesting and thoughtful ideas that we've been developing with the most incredible humans in, in Israel, Palestine, and around the world. Um, and to invite you all to be a part of that change and, and to push all of us to step out of what has been this somehow awful yet comfortable complicity with the reality prior to October 6 or 7, and to say that we, we cannot, that, that is unsustainable. We have to change. We cannot go back. We have to move forward. And we have to collectively be thoughtful and, and, and re reflexive and, and brave in bringing new ideas that are most based on values, based on identity, and, and pragmatic. To that, I um, this is, of course, the reason that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have these voices heard here because 
I feel we're living in a moment here in the diaspora that is a moment defined by false binaries and by fake news and by a complete inability to see each other. And your starting point, the two of you, is that we must meet sorrow with sorrow and meet vulnerability with vulnerability and acknowledge the sacredness of each of our people's connection to this land. And so I deeply, deeply appreciate that. Um, in addition to the really, I have to say, it is creative and it is imaginative and it is, for me, very exciting to read these ideas, which I'm, it's, I've read for over the course of the last couple of years, I've been introduced to the proposal that you have, and it seems utterly impossible, and I'm so aware that everything good in the world seems impossible until it becomes a reality. And so I, I want you to share, if you will, thank you for sharing a little bit about where your hearts are and what brings you into this work, but I'd love if you could get very specific with us about your alternative vision to an endless war and violence and how you imagine a partnership between equals. Your proposal is um, two sovereign states in Eretz Israel, Palestine, where both nations can fulfill their right to self-determination, but without strict physical and demographic separation. In other words, as you write, political separation, yes, Geographic and demographic separation, no. Mutuality, partnership, and equality, yes. So I want to ask you if you can tell us what that means, what you think are the benefits of this kind of radically creative approach, um, and what you think are the hurdles that we will have to overcome in order to get there. Take a, cu take a couple of pieces of that, and then we'll keep, we'll keep going. I would start back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> Justice. Okay. Is that? Oh my goodness. We we are okay with sharing, and we will continue sharing. <clears throat> we have I, no choice. You see. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Maybe I start from this point. We don't have any other choice. Um. We both, Palestinians and Israeli Jews, we are not going to disappear from Eretz Israel, Palestine. We are there. And we had very difficult times uh, since 48, the establishment of the state of Israel. I, I don't want to, to refer much more back to, to the history before that, but um, we had also experiences during these seven decades of living together, not in, in an optimal, equal um, existence, but we are there. We had tough times of fighting each other, but we have also, or we had good times uh, to try to live together. And especially, if you remember, 30 years ago, when, when the two parties decided to sign a peace agreement for the first time in the long history of, of struggling um, against each other. So we, we had one, a kind of semi-successful experience, and that's why we believe that we can repeat this uh, success, but 
we need to do it in a different way, yeah. according to different values, principles, and agreements. And maybe I would like to emphasize here, and then you can explain much more about the political program, um, the principles and the values. Both people need to, <clears throat> to agree about in order to think about a better future and about a solution and, and political settlement of this uh, conflict. Um, first of all, and we mentioned that, um, the first principle is, might be the right of belonging to this place as a homeland for both national groups, considering the Palestinians as well as the Jews as um, two national groups. And national groups usually seek to implement and achieve their right of self-determination. And here we move to the second principle of, of the right or equal right of self-determination of both people on the same homeland while sharing the homeland and not fighting on it. Um, the third principle that we think it's, it's very important is a mutual recognition of the collective memory, history, culture, identity, um, trauma, suffering, interests, and needs. And the fourth principle that we need to emphasize all the time is the principle of, of equality. Both individual and collective equality of all human beings in this place, in, in Eretz Israel, Palestine. And the last principle that we think it's very fundamental in our case after uh, this long bloody conflict is to have a reconciled process or reconciliation between the two nations. And not only to speak about, you know, just a peace or just signing a peace agreement. We need a process of reconciliation and forgiving um, of, of all of what we done to each other during this uh, bloody ongoing uh, conflict. And then we can start speaking about, uh, about political settlement and about a solution, viable, sustainable solution for both people. So as we're in California, I lived in California for a little bit. So let's maybe uh, be Californians and uh, take a deep breath. And, um, and take a moment to imagine a future where Israelis and Palestinians, you can close your eyes if you feel comfortable to do that, and that Israelis and Palestinians acknowledge the fact that no one is going anywhere, 
acknowledge the profound attachment to the homeland of ourselves and of the other people, and together find a way to have a better life for everyone. And that, to me, it's important to start with this political imagination moment because that is a Jewish tradition that we have neglected in the past 75 years. It has been very, um, a beautiful skill of the Jewish people for so long. And it has been, we haven't practiced that muscle in a long time. And so I want to start, as, as you said, it's like unimaginable, but, but as you also said, like we have to start with that. We have to start with a vision. We have to start with the northern star of where we want to get because um, at least in the past 20 years in Israel, people who care about life have not had a vision, have not had hope, have not had that future horizon to fight for and know where we're going. We haven't had that compass. We've just comfortably accepted this status quo or shrinking the conflict or managing the conflict or normalization or just like, let's put the Palestinians behind a wall and forget about that problem. And that has blown up in our faces in the most brutal and tragic way that no one could have imagined, by the way in the place where we've had billion dollars wall and all the IDF and everything evolved of like 16 years of siege and blockade and that's where, that's where, that's where it blew up, blew up. As opposed to, by the way, two million Palestinians who live inside of Israel who are the same families of the folks in Gaza, Apopoitron and Amalek, right? Same people, same families. Two million of them are our doctors and our friends and our colleagues. Two millions are behind a wall, out there, separated, segregated, and that's where the violence came up. And so I'll try to move us to more concrete details in a moment, but just to say that this is what we, this is the, rea this is the problem, okay? And what we claim is that part of the problem is the lack of vision, lack of hope, lack of direction, lack of values, lack of ideas, imagination. The other thing is the paradigm of separation and segregation, which is not only immoral and unjust, it is also just not realistic at this point. As Israelis and Palestinians are interdependent and intertwined and we're stuck together, whether we like it or not. But we have to start with where reality is. And as Lula said, reality is that no one's going anywhere. We're all attached to this homeland. And if I just to give you some more maybe practical examples, you know, water, no, no borders. You can't put a wall and say to the water, no, no, you're Israeli now, because water doesn't care or pollu air pollution, or soil pollution, or the sewage coming out of Gaza right now, 
going into the Mediterranean Sea, and after 36 hours reaching the Tel Aviv beaches, and then us Tel Avivians are just like, oh, the beach is closed, I wonder why, whatever, you know, we'll just go to a cafe, not knowing that it's Gaza, you know, it's, uh, it's the occupation, stupid, you know, it's like, sorry, not to offend anyone, but, um, or, or, or healthcare, COVID, or the awful things that are coming out of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza right now, these awful diseases that are spreading in Palestine and killing Palestinians, then hop on the idea of soldiers and then hop to me. Because however big of a wall you would put, you cannot separate this reality, this homeland, not emotionally, but also not physically. And so if we want to think about a sustainable future, we have to move from this paradigm of segregation because it's, just, it's not going to work. It hasn't worked. It hasn't provided safety for anyone. And it's just not thinking about a viable future. So I'll, and I'll just end with a couple of, um, to take us a little more deep into the content, right? We are offering what we call two states, one homeland. It's two sovereign, independent, democratic states, right for self-determination, in one space, in one homeland, meaning that we aspire for freedom of movement and residence. And although that sounds insane right now, we know, and of course it will be gradual and based on safety for everyone and security measures. But if you think about the EU 80 years ago, and you think about an open border between France and Germany, people would say you are insane. Or Northern Ireland and Ireland, by the way, which you cannot set, you can't even, even see the border. It's crazy. It's unimaginable. But that's where reality is going. And so we have to keep, we have to keep being updated. We cannot rely on solutions that are not speaking reality, are not speaking where people are at, and what we're offering is an updated two-state solution that will really take it, this, these things into consideration. All right. Th thank you so much. Um. So I, um, there, there's incredible material on your website that really outlines both the, the core values that you expressed and then the, the, basic, the, the basic outlines of the plan that you expressed. And since we knew we weren't going to have enough time for this, but we wanted to take advantage of at least the beginning of the conversation with the two of you here in person. And so um, I'm, I'm going to really encourage folks to go to the, to the website and see the proposal. And I'm telling you that as you read it, you're going to say, this is nuts, exactly as Mai just said. There's no way this is possible because trying to imagine that, that Palestinians and Israelis could flow from one place to another place and people would feel safe and would actually feel dignified and would actually feel honored in their humanity is almost unimaginable. And that is exactly why it matters so much right now. And so I feel, I feel what you're doing is, it's incredibly audacious and it is incredibly holy because what you're asking us to do is lift our gaze from the terribly awful status quo of pre-October 7th to the even worse norms of this time post-October 7th and actually dream of a different kind of reality. Um, core, as you write in your material, to this actually becoming a reality is the establishment of real trust between real human beings, Israeli and Palestinian. 
that trust can't be developed if, you're, if we're, we don't know each other and if we're not hearing each other's voices and sharing our narratives and sharing our sorrow and speaking of our trauma together. And that's why this partnership between the two of you is so powerful and meaningful. Of course, it goes uh, maybe without even mention, but the fact that you are two women in a moment in which we have been dragged into a, a really, a really terrible uh, and 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 violent moment by very powerful men who feel again and again that the only way out of this is, is to continue to fight until the other is obliterated. Is not it's not lost on me, and I hope not lost on any of us. And I again hear the echo of Danielle's voice reading a Sarita Dibrot today, reading the Ten Commandments, and I wonder what it would mean to hear the voices of these women who are crying out from within the depths of your own anguish and asking us to dream. Because it seems to me that if you can trust one another, if you can meet trauma with trauma and sorrow with sorrow, and from out of that dream of a different future, how much the more so are we all obligated to do so as people who are here to echo and support you. So I, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wrap us up by simply saying, um, the words that you offer in, in, your own, um, in your own language here. You write, a land for all is not a fantasy. It's rooted in historical, geographic, and emotional realities of the conflict. It is based on historic precedent. Um, it is not a closed-ended solution. On the contrary, it invites discussion, comments, corrections, and additions. But to work toward it, we also have to be able to dream, and mostly to make dreams a reality. It is in our hands. And I am inviting our IKAR community and beyond anybody who's with us today and who's with us virtually to take that call seriously, to read this material, to learn about what it is that you are proposing. I have no idea if this is going to be the ultimate outcome, but I believe that every one of us is called to invest in a just and peaceful outcome. And the way that you are proposing feels to me like a great challenge for us to open our hearts to one another precisely at the moment that our hearts might want to close to one another. And so I'm, I'm again, just inviting you to take this seriously. Our, our work here is to listen deeply, to platform, and to amplify and to resource the voices of the Israelis and Palestinians who are on the ground doing the work and dreaming together of a just and peaceful future. I hope that God blesses you with continued strength, both of you. I hope that you and your families and loved ones are safe. And I hope and pray with every bone in my body that out of this moment of abject anguish and horror and terror for everyone, that we might together move toward a better future for everyone. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And I'm going to invite us to close with song, and then we will 